take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. We're in chapter 18 today, 1 Kings chapter 18, continuing in our look at the life of the prophet Elijah. Here's the key concept today. Do not waver between two opinions. God wants full devotion. Today we're going to see a face-off. In hockey, of course, the game starts with a face-off, right? The puck is dropped between the two uh, players on the opposing teams. They're facing each other, and what they want to do is they want to get that puck to their teammates to score as fast as possible. And today we see a face-off of a different kind. It's a theological face-off between Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and the prophets of the pagan gods. In fact, this might be the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Elijah, this story this situation, because it is so flamboyant, it is so outrageous what God does here in this face-off. But before we get there, I want to catch up to the flow of the story so we understand where we are in the life of Elijah. As we come to chapter 18, the drought that Elijah has predicted has come to pass by God's power. It's in its third year. And Elijah has been in hiding all this time. First he was in hiding at the brook Kerith, and then he left the nation Israel, went into Sidon, and was in hiding with a widow in the city of Zarephath. And now the word of the Lord comes to him once again, and he says, I want you to go back to Israel. I want you to seek out King Ahab, and I want you to be once again in the public eye speaking out for me a message to the nation. And so Elijah comes back to Israel, and along the way, he encounters a man who has a bit of a complicated story. The man's name is Obadiah. In a sense, Obadiah is living a contradiction. He's living a contradictory life. Now, this is not the Obadiah who writes the book Obadiah in your Bible, the prophet. That's not, this is a different Obadiah. This Obadiah is King Ahab's right-hand man, but he's also a follower of Yahweh, somewhat on the down low. So let's pick up the story. We're going to read verses 2 through 3 and then 5 through 8. We start our reading. It says, now, now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. In parentheses, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Verse 5, Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and the mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land that they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah going in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed low to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. As I said, Obadiah is a man who is a living contradiction. The contradiction is this. On one side of the coin, we see Obadiah the faithful. In verse 3, he's described as a devout believer in Yahweh. But as I said, his belief is on the down low, he's keeping his belief hidden. He's keeping it quiet. Obadiah the faithful has done good deeds. Twice in this chapter, we see reference that Obadiah has taken it upon himself to hide away a hundred prophets of Yahweh that, that uh, Queen Jezebel had pledged to kill. 
And so there were moments of courageousness. There were moments of faithfulness when he stepped out and he did what was right. But there, too, it was kind of a, a secret uh, kind of mission that he was on. He did so in secret because on the other side of Obadiah's life, we see Obadiah the fearful. He's fearfully cooperating with Ahab's warped priorities. He's concealing his commitment to Yahweh to save face with this pagan king who is against the worship of Yahweh. He wants to retain his position of honor and place of privilege. And I show you that because the message of this chapter is God wants bold followers. He wants consistent followers. He wants faithful followers who are willing to stand up for what they believe. He doesn't want those who waver. But Obadiah wavers. He wavers so that he can take part in the lifestyle that he's enjoying. He wavers as he's willing to compromise his values and keep the faith quiet and look what it brings him to at this point. It brings him to a place where he is scavenging for grass for horses and mules so that the animals will be kept alive while the people in the land are starving. We start the reading with, the famine was severe. Now that's just what you would expect from a selfish pagan king like Ahab. But it's not what you would expect from a man who in verse 3 is described as a devout believer. He's wavering. But Elijah is giving him a way out of that compromise. Elijah is offering him a moment in which he can be both faithful and courageous. Go tell your master that I am here. And the very thought of that panics Obadiah. He's set into a, a mode of fear. And he begins to make excuses why he doesn't want to do it. His first excuse is bogus. Verse 12, he says, well, maybe if I go find him and bring him here, you're not going to be here anymore, and he'll, he'll be mad at me. That's bogus. Elijah is the one who wants to see the king. He's going to stay. But the real reason is this. The real reason is Elijah is rocking the boat. Obadiah has established a delicate balance, keeping his faith in one corner of his life and his privilege in the other corner of his life. He has a neatly partitioned, very carefully orchestrated life, but it is a hypocritical life. He's afraid to get that, to rock that boat. And he's also afraid of something else. In verse uh, 14, it says, And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Why is he afraid of that? Because Obadiah is worried that Ahab might conclude that Obadiah has been working with Elijah all along. Maybe he's known where he's been all this three years of famine all along. See, Obadiah doesn't believe that God can take care of him against the wrath of a king. In his mind, the one true God is less real, less powerful than a king who is scrounging for grass. But eventually, Obadiah does bring Elijah and Ahab together. And he finds out that all of this was not worth worrying about after all. The story of the face-off is coming. But I want you to see that, that we could have 
read the story of the face-off between the prophet Elijah and the pagan prophets of the land. We could have read that story without ever mentioning Obadiah because all of this confrontation doesn't amount to much. So I ask the question as I read chapter 18, why is that here? Why does God give us that insight? And the insight is there because we are like that so often. Remember, God tells us these old stories of what happened then because this is what happens now. We are very much like that. We believe, but so often are timid. We believe, but we are so often fearful. And the desire to be comfortable trumps very often the desire to be truthful and to be transparent. And God is reminding us, this is what wavering looks like. Don't waver. But then Elijah meets with Ahab, and the confrontation is about to begin. Go to verse 16 of, chap- of chapter 18. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him that Ahab, and, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Notice in Ahab's mind, the problems that he's going through are all Elijah's fault. This famine, this drought, all this trouble, it's your fault. You brought this on us, but Elijah's going to have none of that. No, really, this is about you. This is about you and it's about your family. And to prove that this is about you and your family and the way that you have led this nation to false gods, we're going to have a little contest. So Elijah invites the prophets of the pagan god and the pagan goddess Asherah to the face-off. Now, we haven't really talked about Asherah very much, but all throughout the Old Testament, that name appears as a part of the pantheon of pagan gods. The symbol for Asherah is often a tree or a pole around which the worship takes place. Now, we know from ancient literature that's not in the Bible that Asherah was considered the great mother goddess in the Canaanite religious, in the system of their paganism. She was the great mother goddess that gave birth to 70 gods, the top of which the most prominent was Baal. And God, through the prophet Elijah, is taking them both on in this contest, both of them. And so Elijah assembles the people. The prophets of the pagan gods come. The people also come. At least a, a, a good portion of the people come to, to watch the action. And Elijah goes before them, and he makes one of his very few speeches. Let's pick up verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. 
Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. The face-off is about to begin. Now, we're going to forgive Elijah's little bit of puffing up of his resume, saying that he's the only prophet, when he knows full well that Obadiah has just hid a hundred prophets, right? But it wouldn't be particularly uh, smart for him to say, I and the 100 prophets that are in hiding from Jezebel, who, by the way, are in an undisclosed location, no, that's not something he wants to draw attention to. So he takes it all on himself, and the contest begins. And the contest is, which of these gods is going to be able to make a burnt offering without a human being striking a match? That's the contest. And Elijah begins the, ad- the address to the people by, how long will you waver? How long will you waver between two opinions? See, the people didn't know what to think. And because the people didn't know what to think, the people didn't know what to do. Obadiah is an example of wavering. That's how his story fits in. But really, everybody was wavering. And it's easy to waver your way through life. As we waver, our lives become a constant tug of war between righteousness and non-righteousness. And it depends on who we're with. It depends on how we feel. It depends on how things are going. Am I getting what I want? Do I seem to be achieving? And we're back and forth in this wavering lifestyle. And the whole message here is got to get off the fence because God wants fully devoted followers who are committed to Him and His ways. And so the face-off begins. Verse 25, we'll pick up the reading. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention because there was no one to pay attention. There was no one on the other end of the line. No one was listening. The frantic activity of the pagan prophets shouting and dancing and slashing, they get no answer. And all the while, Elijah is taunting them in a greater and greater fashion. In fact, it gets a little crude. In verse 27, maybe he's busy. The Hebrew carries the sense of maybe he's busy relieving himself. Get him, get him out of the bathroom. Let's, see what, let's, let's get some action here. No answer. Nothing happens. Why? Because a false God is just that, false. There's nothing there. There's no one to answer. Jeremiah describes the silliness of idolatry in his day with this. He says in chapter 2, They say, To wood you are my father. To stone you gave me birth. 
There's nothing there. The wood and the stone represents that which is not real. And finally, after they have exhausted themselves and nothing happens, it's Elijah's turn. And he builds an altar of stone, places it on, on a mound there, and the, on the top of the stone is wood, and on top of the wood is the sacrifice. And then he makes a strange request in verse 33. He says, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. I want you to see what Elijah does as he involves the people. He wants them to get their hands involved in this whole demonstration. I want you to be absolutely convinced that this fire is not going to burn. Drench that wood with water. Soak it good, good and soaking. And he involves the people so that there's no way that they could ever believe this is going to be lit on fire. Pick up verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down into the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. Elijah calls on God to do something that will change hearts and minds not for his own sake, but for the sake of the glory of the Lord and the salvation of the people. It was about their rescue. It was about their repentance, about them turning around and coming back to the right worship of Yahweh. And the fire of God falls, and it falls only on the sacrifice, not on the sinners, because this was not about vengeance. And God's own fire falls and it burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the wood. It licks up the rock. It licks up the, the mound of ground that it was on. And it evaporates the water around the, the, the altar there. Everything there is vaporized by fire. And after that, Elijah turns to Ahab and says, The drought is over. You're about to hear the sound of heavy rain. But when Elijah said that, the sky is clear. The people are impressed. But Ahab, it seems, even though he has seen this demonstration of God's own power, he's not impressed. He's been defeated, but he still won't believe. He's going to go back to his palace pretty soon. But Elijah knows that now is the timing of the Lord to end the drought. And he has demonstrated great courage in this confrontation. And now with this statement, the sound of heavy rain is coming. With that statement, he demonstrates faith. The sound of heavy rain. Even though the sky is clear, there's no evidence whatsoever. Courage and faith. And I want you to see that courage and faith are partners. They must be partners in our lives as well. Courage and faith. It takes courage to face off these pagan prophets. It takes courage to stand up for morality in our current culture where biblical values are ridiculed right and left. It takes courage to live like Christ followers at some work sites and some schoolrooms where the humor is crude and the language is coarse and the attitudes are profane. It takes courage to keep on praying when you feel your body is attacked by disease 
It takes courage to keep on praying when you lay awake at night worrying about those you love who are making terrible choices and all you can do is pray. It takes courage and we must be courageous like Elijah. And remember that courage and faith are partners. Faith breeds courage. Courage breeds faith. The Hebrew author says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. When Elijah looked at the sky, what he did not see is clouds. But he said, the sound of heavy rain is coming because he was certain of it. God had told him. And when courage is partnered with faith, wonderful things can happen. 1 Kings 18.42 is the rest of the story. So as Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and he looked and there was nothing there. He said seven times, go back. And the seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And here it comes. That's the fruit of faith. That's the vindication of courage. No matter what things look like in the moment, if God has declared that change is going to happen, change is going to happen. If God has declared it, it will certainly occur. Faith will call for persistence. Seven times he sent the servant back. Make sure, look again, look at the horizon, make sure you're looking. Seven times he's consistently saying, I believe it's going to happen. The, the, uh, the author James in the New Testament picks up the story. says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop because his partnership with God was based on a courageous faith. In verse 45, we see the result. The sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on and Ahab rose off, uh, rode off to Jezreel. Ahab is still going into his palace to hide. And God was vindicated this day. But let's circle back to verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? See, this was all about getting the people to stop their wavering. It was all about getting them to stop being one way in one place and another way in another place. One way with one crowd and another way with another crowd. It was all about ending their mixture of Yahweh and Baal and Asherah, mixing all together in a religious stew and trying to get what they could out of each of those systems. And all they got was a watered-down, weak version of the true God mixed with the culture's falsehoods. And all around us, we're seeing people cling to a watered-down, weak version of the true God, mixing the society's falsehoods into their life. How long will we waver? Maybe they thought themselves open-minded. Maybe they thought themselves well-rounded in some vague sense. But what they really were, were foolish and lost. Because what God wants is full devotion from His people. And Elijah shows us that. Full devotion. No wavering. I read a story that takes place years ago. Back when you crossed the ocean in ships, steamships, and a man was engaged to a young woman here in, in the United States of America, but his job sent him to Ireland for a year. And he went there for, for to take up his job, and his fiancée was afraid that he, he would take up with another girl while, while there. Well, they corresponded regularly by letter, he told her, look, I'm working hard. I'm being faithful, not seeing any of the girls here in this Irish village. 
And at one point in their correspondence, she sent him a harmonica. And she said, you know, since you're home alone in the evening, every evening, I'm sending you this harmonica so that you can practice at night, have something to do to fill your time. And he wrote back saying, I am practicing every night. Thank you for the harmonica that you sent me. Well, after the year was over, he was transferred back. And as he got off that ship, came down the gangplank, he saw all the crowds there to meet their friends and loved ones. And there she was, his fiancée, waiting for him at the bottom of that gangplank. And he walked down and, and he leaned in for a kiss. But before he did, she said, hold on. Let me hear you play the harmonica. <laughs> Full devotion. That's what she wanted. And that's what... God wanted as well. He wants that from us today, full devotion. So where are you wavering? It's a legitimate question. It's easy to waver. That's where we need to work. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that we would be fully devoted followers. That's a phrase that's tossed around a lot, but it is very easy to say it and not live it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring to our minds those areas where we need to see full compliance, complete surrender, that you would bring into our minds that how our following needs to be a faithful following and not a faltering. Enable us to be aware of that through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and then by his power to follow hard after you. We know that that's what you want. We pray that we are able to achieve it by your grace and through your mercy. We know we do it as you enable us. So enable us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.